So as one who has been to a fair amount of weddings and officiated a fair amount of weddings, I think I could tell you that I believe, although there's lots of great parts in a wedding, the best part of the wedding is when the bride enters the room and the groom sees his bride in that moment. And I could tell you that a lot of people would agree with me on this because from this perspective, if there was a wedding in this room and, and if I was here officiating from this perspective, when that moment happens, this is what you see in the crowd out there. You see this. A back and forth, a back and forth. Because they want to capture the beauty of the bride, but they want to see the impact of the beauty of the bride on the bridegroom. And it's a moment that everyone grabs. And I'm so grateful that at the end of Revelation, we are told that Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. And we are moving towards an amazing wedding day, a wedding feast of the Lamb, as they call it. Johnny Erickson Tata, who is an author and teacher who I highly recommend you read and listen to anything she writes. She was paralyzed from the neck down in a diving accident as a teenager, and she draws this parallel between her wedding day and Christ's love for the church. She says, I felt awkward as my girlfriend strained to shift my paralyzed body into a cumbersome wedding gown. No amount of corseting or binding my body gave me the perfect shape. The dress didn't fit well. Then as I was wheeling into the church, I glanced down and noticed that I accidentally ran over the hem of my dress, leaving a greasy tire mark on my wedding gown. My paralyzed hands couldn't hold the bouquet of daisies that lay off-center my lap, and my chair, though decorated for the wedding, was still a big, clunky, gray machine with belts, gears, and ball bearings. I certainly didn't feel like the picture-perfect bride in a bridal magazine. I inched my chair closer to the last pew to catch a glimpse of Ken in the front. There he was, standing tall and stately in his formal attire. I saw him looking for me, craning his neck to look above the aisle. My face flushed, and I suddenly couldn't wait to be with him at that altar. I had seen my beloved. The love in Ken's face had washed away my feelings of unworthiness. I was his pure and perfect bride. How easy it is for us to think that we are utterly unlovely, especially in the light of the perfection and loveliness of Christ. But he loves us with the bright eyes of a bridegroom's love and cannot wait for the day we are united with him forever. That's where we're going. That's where the church is headed. That's where we will see new creation and the culmination of all God has intended brought forward in that amazing marriage of the Lamb that will bring forth the new heaven and the new earth where we will reign with Christ as a church forever and ever. But some things have to take place first before that happens. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Revelation chapter 19. We're going to start there and cover two chapters this morning. 
Revelation, if you're new to the Bible, is the last, chap, last book of the Bible. It's in the back, and we'll be starting at the big number 19. And we left off Revelation in chapter 18, where we saw this thing called the prostitute of Babylon. And what a, the prostitute of Babylon was, was a symbol of the worldly influence that is out in the world that we even experience today that tries to lure us away from Christ. The influence of the world to lure and pull away as many people as this force can away from Jesus Christ. It's birthed in the heart of Satan, capitalized by the beast that we see, the Antichrist, now is rampant in the world, and Jesus comes and destroys first that influence. The prostitute of Babylon is destroyed. That worldly influence that constantly lures people away is gone at this point in the story. And we see that heaven rejoices that now step one, that influence is destroyed, and there's going to be a progression of getting rid of all the evil that will happen prior to the wedding feast of the Lamb will start to roll out. And so we see in the opening verses of 19 the response of heaven once that first dispelling of that evil influence is gone by the judgment of God. Revelation 19, look at the first 10 verses. It says, After this I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! Smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. We first ran into the 24 elders and the four living creatures in chapter 5. They represent, the 24 elders represent all Christian people. The four living creatures are all the host of angels in heaven. And they fell down and worshipped God seated on the throne. And then they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting, hallelujah, for our Lord God reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. The wedding is happening. Your best earthly moment won't hold a candle to this moment when we're there. It will be absolutely amazing. And the bride of Christ, the church, will be glorified when that happens. God will not be unequally yoked in marriage and the completion of salvation for God's people will happen. Verse 9 said, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John. He fell at the feet of an angel. And the angel says, Don't do that. I am your fellow servant with you 
and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me, he's saying. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. This scene is going to be so, so amazing and great. It, it blows my mind that the apostle John, who was with Jesus on earth, watched him minister, was even caught up in the moment to the point he began to worship an angel. That's how amazing this was. And the angel said, no, 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 no. Direct your worship to God. God alone. This is the amazing preparations in heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb when the church is perfected, fully redeemed, and will begin to live out with Christ the new heavens and the new earth. But some things have to happen first before that takes place. Our main point this morning is Jesus in his holy character and perfect righteousness will destroy the beasts, will destroy Satan, and then will judge the human race. Before the marriage of the Lamb can take place, evil has to be done away with. Evil has to be taken care of. And what we're going to see is exactly in this point. Jesus in his character, his perfect righteousness, takes care of evil by destroying the beast, destroying Satan, and then he must judge the entire human race. So let's take a look. Let's look at Jesus' holy character and perfect righteousness. In 19, let's look at verses 11 to 16. When I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. There's going to be a ton of symbolism here in these next few verses, but it's so obvious to us who this is. This is Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to me that the title they give him, Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, as it says in Psalm 2. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his throne robe and on his thigh he has, name written, has his, this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The bridegroom shows up, not dressed for a wedding, but dressed for battle. Because something has to take place first. And in all the symbolism, it's fairly easy for us to see that this is Jesus, this victorious picture. And I love that Jesus is called the Word of God. The one who wrote this book, the, or this book of Revelation, the Apostle John, also wrote the Gospel of John. In the first chapter, he refers to Jesus as the Word of God. And now we see that here at the end as well. The armies of heaven are there, gathered. We will see the armies of evil will gather as well. But again, I point out to you that you will not find a battle or a war anywhere in the book of Revelation. You find righteous judgment. You don't see battles because you can't fight against God. 
That's my humble opinion of the interpretation of this. There's a lot of other good scholars out there who do believe the symbolism tells us there's a war and a battle. I don't believe that. I don't think you can say the symbolism is literal in some places and not exactly in the others without a lot of good hard work. So I believe that the armies gather, but God's judgment is quick before a battle can happen. On his robe and his thigh is the title King of Kings. When you think about Jesus and you close your eyes and you picture Jesus, what comes to your mind? Is it this? The victorious ruler, reigning king called the Word of God with King of Kings and Lord of Lords on his thigh with sword coming out of his mouth. All this righteousness displayed is all this symbolism is a way of describing the character and the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ coming forward. And John is doing all he can with the tools he has with apocalyptic literature to paint this picture of faithful and true Jesus Christ, King of kings, Lord of lords, now coming to get rid of all evil because in God's kingdom there is no evil. There is no injustice. There is no sin or wrongdoing. Only perfect righteousness, perfect goodness, perfect joy, and perfect peace. And for that to happen in the current state, Jesus must act. And he does. Some say, I don't worship a God of judgment. I worship a God of mercy. Some say God isn't a God of judgment. God is a God of mercy. We best not domesticate Jesus or make him more palatable to our 21st century view or way of thinking. If we don't like the judgment of God, our best response is to submit to him and say he's right, we're wrong. God has to be a God of judgment in order to be a God of mercy. You can't just have a God of mercy. If you have evil, oppressing people who cry out for mercy, the only thing they'll get rid of that evil is a God of judgment to judge the evil in a merciful way. Mercy and judgment are linked together in the heart of God, and you can't separate either of those. For God to be merciful, he has to be a God of judgment. And his character demands so. And he uses that character now and acts out of it as he destroys the beasts that we saw earlier in the book of Revelation. He's going to do so here, and it's described in very, very disturbing terms. The apocalyptic literature of Revelation doesn't fail us yet again. These Disturbing terms, and I'm going to explain why. Look at verse, chapter 19, verses 17 to 21. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come and gather together for the great supper of God. This judgment is called that. So that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. 
Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. See, there's no battle. The beast was captured before a battle could happen. And with it, the false prophets who performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Like I said, very disturbing picture. Why so graphic? Why so disturbing? Sometimes the judgment of God is uncomfortable for us, and John wanted to capture that. But it's not just that. He also wanted to highlight that what we read here, this judgment being called the great supper of God, and all that takes place, comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 39, verses 17 to 20. Again, Revelation, there's no book in the New Testament that has as much Old Testament references as the book of Revelation. And this symbolizes the complete and utter victory of God. What he's putting out for us is the total picture of God's enemies finally destroyed. And verses 19 to 20 focus this judgment of God on the beasts we met in Revelation 13 which was the Antichrist. The beast of the sea and the beast of the earth who became the false prophet are now destroyed. And what we're seeing is this is part of a method of God's judgment rolling out, ridding the world of all evil forever. In chapter 18, we see the influence of evil in the prostitute of Babylon gone and wiped out. In chapter 19, we see the beasts that we saw in Revelation 13 who poured out all lies and suffering on the church, wiped out. So Babylon was wiped out. The beasts are wiped out. Who's going to be next? It's not that hard to figure out. Satan. The Babylon was wiped out in 1718. The beasts are wiped out in 19. And the destruction of Satan once and for all happens in chapter 20. Let's take a look at chapter 20 where we see that Jesus in his holy character and perfect righteousness now destroys Satan. Let me give you some words before we dive into it though. In order to understand Revelation chapter 20, you have to understand all that has led up to this point. It's the foundation, we've set the foundation and now we're going to see what happens Babylon and beasts are destroyed. It makes sense. The next stop is to defeat the dragon Satan. The source of all evil. The source of all wickedness. The source of all injustice. And the source will have to be taken out extensively. Now when you've been a Christian for a while, it's hard to be surprised by things you read in the Bible. Because it becomes like a familiar song. You hear it again and you've heard it before. But one thing that is a very good practice in Bible reading is try to read it like you're reading it for the very first time. And that's especially true in Revelation chapter 20. Because we get hung up on this thing called the 1,000 years if you've been around a church for a while. And when you get hung up on the thing called 1,000 years, you miss a surprise. Surprise. 
that the Apostle John has that he doesn't want us to miss. So let's look at Revelation chapter 20, the first three verses, like we're seeing it for the first time. It says this, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until a thousand years were ended. This is the part we tend to miss. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Now there's a reason, there's a contrast between the thousand years and short time. And I want to explain that. Every time reference we've had in the book of Revelation up to this point, from chapter 1 all the way to now, has been relatively short. We've seen references to a half hour, to an hour, to five months. The longest time reference we've had is three and a half years or 42 months. And the book ends of this book, chapter 1 to chapter 22, say, pay attention to this because the time is short. So you have this short amount of time, this exhortation that the time is short, and now all of a sudden you have a thousand years. A thousand years is mentioned six times in the first seven verses of chapter 20, but it's not mentioned anywhere else in the entire Bible. Yet, most of the conversation of the end times surrounds this 1,000 years. There's all sorts of different theological schools and views. They're called, using the term millennial, meaning the thousand-year reign. Premillennial, meaning like the reign is going to happen before Christ comes back, pre, and then Christ returns. There's the school of postmillennialism, that the reign is going to happen then after, post the reign, Christ returns. Or amillennialism, where it's the reign is taking place now, figuratively, over all of church history. And on to in October 2nd, a Sunday, I'm going to give a sermon that's kind of a bonus revelation sermon. We're going to talk all about the millennials, all about tribulation, all about the rapture, to give you some insight on that. So we don't have to dive into it now. But where you land in that interpretation directs some of these things. However, what I don't want you to miss is there's an overarching meaning, regardless of what school or camp you're in, that you have to grab, that I believe John the Apostle wants us to understand. Since Revelation 12, we've talked about the power of the dragon and the struggle of the church. Since Revelation 12, we talked about the power of the dragon and the struggle of the church. How many times... During this series, have you heard me say, now it looks like Satan is going to win, but don't believe it. I've said that often. We see Satan and his act of harassing, deceiving, not conquering, but harassing and deceiving, inflicting suffering on the church. But now, this is why you have a thousand years and then a little bit of time. But now, we see the strength of the church and the weakness of the dragon. It's been flipped. 
Before we saw the power of the dragon and the struggle of the church, now we see the power of the church and the weakness of the dragon. The dragon is now losing. And we live in a time where the dragon now is still active and deceiving. But we also live in a time where the, the church is being strengthened in the midst of it. We live in times where we see both of these going on. We see lots of people who are deceived today, and we also see lots of people who are not deceived today. There's this evil advancement now, but it won't last. And this is the overarching meaning of the 1,000 years and the little bit of time afterwards. What John is saying is this. Christians, the time of your suffering is short, but the time of your reigning with Jesus and being with him is going to be very, very long. The time of your suffering is short, but the time where you will reign with the King of kings and the Lord of lords will be very long. Notice in verse 1, it says, I saw an angel. We have seen lots of angels in the book of Revelation, haven't we? Angels with names, big powerful angels, legions of angels. When it comes to judging Satan, we don't need a great angel. Any angel will do. That's how weak he is compared to our God. Any angel ordered by God is powerful enough. And he seizes the dragon. And notice that John does not want us to miss who this is that's being destroyed and taking, uh, held captive and being pulled of his power. In verse 2, take a look. He says, he sees the dragon. Hint, the ancient serpent. Hint, who is the devil. Hint, who is Satan. There's no disguising what's happening here. He wants us to know that Satan will be bound for a thousand years and then released in a little while. And in the original language, the translation of that Greek word in English is micron. That's how short that little while will be. And as I said, when we get into the sermon October 2nd, it'll be helpful, but there's different views of that. Some would say if the thousand years and the little micron is the broad view of church history, where the dragon is strong for a little while and then the church is made strong for a long time. Some would say the thousand years and the micron is happening at the same time. That so many things that we see in the book of Revelation are not sequential like we think, like first, second. It's happening at the same time. And so there is times where the strong 1,000 year of Christ's reign is active and the micron is active. And it can't mean that at the end there's this brief intense evil because that would take away the fact that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night. We would know it. Some say the 1,000 year reign is happening now. And Satan is bound while the church is doing its work. And that that brief moment is the tribulation that will be intense at the end time. A lot is determined on your interpretation. We're going to get into that later. But this is the important part you can't miss. This is the end of Satan. Once and for all. 
We've seen this leading up all the way through the book of Revelation to this point. Evil is now being stopped by the justice of God. Look at verse 4 to 6. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. And they had not worshipped the beast or its image. They had not received the mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death will have no power over them. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him a thousand years. We see thrones. In the book of Revelation, the only place you see thrones is in heaven. So you have this heavenly scene, and on these thrones are the souls of those who were put to death because of their faith in Christ. They held faithful to Christ to their last breath. Imagine the comfort this brought to John's original audience who watched family members who were Christians beheaded because of their faith in Christ and they wondered what happened to them and he says, they were in heaven, they are alive, they are seeing this and they will come again and reign with Christ. The joy that must have filled this original audience. They watched their people die of allegiance to Christ and now they hear that they will live forever. And they will reign with Christ to the end. You cannot kill Christians or the church. You just embolden them to share their faith and be faithful. Those Christians who have died are now with Jesus. Christians in your family who died are now with Jesus. Christians in our church family who have died and gone before us are now with Jesus. And they're alive and aware of everything going on. They're not sleeping. They're not unconscious. They're alive. And when Jesus returns, they will return with him. And what John is saying here is this means that dying in this life is the first resurrection. When you're a Christian and you die in this life, you are resurrected into eternal life. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of eternal life. It's a resurrection. And when Jesus comes again and establishes the new heaven and new earth, then there'll be another resurrection for those and they will be united with their bodies and their bodies will be glorified. And Christians in that resurrection will receive a glorified body, no more sin, no more suffering, no more shame, and they will reign forever with Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever and ever. Believers in glorified bodies and unbelievers not. Look at verses 7 to 10. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them for battle. In number there, like the sand of the seashore, they marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down. Notice there was no war. They gathered, but fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. God's perfect justice. People look at the evil in the world and say, when is God going to do something? He is going to do something. 
Gog and Magog, what does that mean? Ezekiel 8, or 38 and 39 tell us that Gog and Magog were enemies of the people of Israel. This is not about some current nations becoming and taking the place of Gog and Magog. It's not that Gog is China and Magog is Germany. All this is simply saying is that in the four corners of the whole world, God's judgment's going to fall on all the enemies of God, just like God's judgment fell on all the enemies of Israel in the past. But it's going to be final. Paul wrote of this final judgment. He said, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus Christ will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Jesus is going to come and poof, with one breath, Satan is destroyed and gone forever. He's going to breathe a breath and Satan will be gone. All evil is gone at that point forever. It will cease. All suffering done. All injustices made right. And it will last that way forever and ever and ever and ever. And we will be there as God's people reigning with Christ. And it creates this hunger. It should create this hunger inside of us. We long to live for something bigger than ourselves. There's a pastor who lived in the Chicago area. And he said, we do not simply want to see glory. We want to be a part of glory. It's like hardwired in us. He talks about when he lived in Chicago in the 1990s and a friend of theirs regularly gave them Bulls tickets. And every year he said he'd take his son to the game and the seats were right alongside the tunnel where the Bulls team would come in and go out. And he said as Michael Jordan would come through that tunnel, all the people would reach over to try to touch him because they wanted to have a piece of the glory. Even though they knew they were not basketball players. We all want to touch glory. We all want to connect with it. We want to be part of it, even though we know we are not worthy. And I believe that's a taste that God gives us of what is to come. The last thing that happens before the marriage is that Jesus in his holy character and perfect righteousness judges the entire human race. And the chapter ends with that event that must take place before the wedding. Look at chapter 20, 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were open. Another book was open, which is a book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they have done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. And the lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. This is known as the great white throne judgment that will happen when Christ returns to earth. And there's three big questions surrounding this. The first one is, who will be judged? Who will be judged? All the people, every human being that ever lived, will be judged in the great, great white throne judgment. Each person will have to give an account before God, it says in Romans 14. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5.10 says, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Every single human being will be judged. So that leads to the second question then, what basis will we be judged on? I remember getting a text from somebody in our church saying, I'm reading about Christians being judged. I thought as Christians, we're not judged because we're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. That's a good question. Look at verse 12. It says, I saw before me books were open, plural, books that contained all of our deeds. And then look, it says, another book was open, which is the book of life. Thank God for that book. The book is the Lamb's book of life. And it was, had all the names of those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And they were written in there, the Bible tells us, before the foundation of the earth was laid. God had written all the names in the book of life. The book is the list of all those whose sins are covered by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It is the record of all those that God calls his own. It's the record and the list of those who know God and love God. It was written in Ephesians 1, 4 says, before the foundation of the world, it said God predestined these people written in the book of life to stand before him on that great white throne judgment, holy and blameless because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If your name is in that book, you don't have to fear the great white throne of judgment because your deeds that will be exposed in the other books, the good and the bad and the ugly, will be wrapped up in the righteousness of the book of life because of the Lamb of God. This is why we should rejoice. This is why Jesus' work on the cross is so amazing. All who repent and believe his names will be written in the Lamb's book of life. This is so amazing that Jesus' followers, his disciples, when he was on earth doing his ministry, went out and they did all these amazing things. They healed the sick, they raised the dead, they cast out demons, and they came to Jesus and they said, look at all these great things we did. And Jesus in Luke 10, 20 says, don't rejoice that you did all these great things. Rejoice that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. It's better than all the great things we can do on earth. It should cause worship to rise in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus, for that book. What about you? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you repented and say, God, I want to turn from my selfish ways and I want to live for you? If not, you should do that today because this day is coming. So the last question then, what will the results of the judgment be? Some people say for believers, what matters in those books? And we're going to get to that. But what I want you to know, the results are for believers, there'll be eternal paradise. But we see here for those who are not believers, eternal conscious punishment that will never ever end. That is why the decision is so serious. So if you haven't given your life to Christ, do it today. So for those who have given their life to Christ, then what matters what's in the other books? Why should there be a record of what we did? Because the books that host our deeds will confirm 
that you are joined to Jesus Christ. Yes, it will list your actions, good, bad, and ugly, but it will also show at some point you gave your life to Jesus Christ, that you were connected to Jesus in a saving, transforming way. It will show that at some point you threw yourself on the mercy of God and said, Jesus, forgive me for my sin. Come into my life. I want to live for you. And you receive his forgiveness. And in that moment, your appetite for sin changed. And you had a great love and affection for God. That will be in those books. Those books will also show the good things that you did after you gave your life to Christ because of the work of Christ in your heart. Then believers will receive a reward for all they did. Our actions after we give our lives to Christ matter. So Christian, how you live today matters. How you live today matters. Live your life knowing and reflecting on the character of God and the content of Scripture. The character of God and the content of Scripture. In a world full of chaos, in a world full of injustice, In a world full of confusion, this is where you find your peace. In the character of God and the content of Scripture. People say no one knows the future. We say by the character of God and the content of Scripture, God knows the future and everything's under his control. People say our country is doomed. And we say by the character of God and the content of Scripture, the church is unstoppable. And thriving all over the world, including the United States of America. Remember the book of Revelation was written to the original audience to counter all these false narratives. The Roman Empire was propping and throwing out all these false narratives saying Nero is the king of kings. Nero is the greatest. Nero is the one you need to worship. And John was writing this to say, no, Jesus Christ is the king of kings and lord of lords. And he alone will reign and rule at the end. That same message applies to us in 2022 when we hear all these counter narratives coming our way of what is really true and what really rules. No, Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he always will be. People say the end of civilization is near, and we agree. And by the character of God and the content of Scripture, we say, come, Lord Jesus. If you feel internally anxious about the state of affairs in today's world, if you feel this inward anxiety when you see all the things happening around you, as your pastor, I want to encourage you to think about something. What do you spend most of your time reflecting on? What do you spend most of your time reflecting on? Reflect less on how the world is changing and reflect more on the unchangeable character of God. Spend less time watching the news, being discipled by your preferred news network, and instead spend more time reading and reflecting on the words of your heavenly Father who loves you and can be trusted Spend less time surfing on the internet or social media, more time talking to God. 
Go for a walk in our beautiful central Wisconsin fall days. See the creation, the leaves, the sky, the sun, the water, all affirming the glorious character of the living God and the content of Scripture. Turn off the TV, listen to worship music, and enter into the worship of the living God and think about what you are singing. All of this world is made by God and given to you to enjoy and point your affections towards him. And he will redeem it all in the new heavens and the new earth. And it is so much better than stewing on the chaos of our current world. It is the character of God and the content of Scripture that we find true peace. Let's anchor our hearts there. Let's pray.